Welcome to ArcNext Sessions. I'm Paul and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we're going to dedicate the show to running down a number of news stories that we've covered on ArcNext. But before we get started, Ken, I've heard the herbivorous butcher shop is open for business. Want to give us an update on that? Um, the grand opening is uh, this Saturday. They're open 10 to 6 on Saturday and same thing on Sunday. So how did the uh, completion of the project work out? Nice and smooth, it seems, based on the, I mean, the photos look amazing. You know, I think what I, I learned a lot about in this project is how much control I would rather have as the as the designer. I think that's what you find out most of all when you do these kinds of projects is that when you kind of see that kind of responsibility over to a general contractor who really doesn't have your vision in mind when they're trying to build out a space becomes a little bit challenging. And and it was a challenging process throughout the six months of actually building this space. And it didn't end even at the end of the project through the punch list. I was I was fighting for the last $750 I could fight for the client right down to the very end. I was dragging this general contractor to the finish line and trying to make them pay for things that were um, in the bid and weren't provided by them. It was difficult to try to keep in mind that the clients have a responsibility to pay back this money. They have a responsibility to create this, the general contractor's responsibility to create the space that was designed in the documents and keeping in mind of the long-term goals of the client as well, which was, you know, it was difficult when the, the general contractor was fighting everything. And it was equally complicated just doing punch lists, which is the stupidest thing. But, you know, when you set out a date to open the shop and, you know, you're spending the last, you know, few weeks, a couple of weeks trying to get through punch list stuff, it's really a challenge to try to get them to kind of finish it. But having said that, it, it looks fantastic. I walk in there and I see the deficiencies. <laughs> and I guess as, as a designer, that's what happens. You see all the things that the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. And, um, you know, if there was better communication in the process, it would have, uh, you would have resolved it. But at the end of the day, when you get family members coming up to you and, and thanking you for taking care of their, their kids and looking after them when they were going through this process, it's a very humbling thing indeed to, to be placed, you know, to have that kind of responsibility and have their mom and dad just tell you, you know, you stuck your neck out and you looked out for uh, for our children and you made sure that things were done correctly and, and everybody was super happy with the space. And, you know, we had a soft open over the week this past weekend and universally everybody was just, you know, falling over the fun stuff that was going on in the space. And it's it's nice when the your thinking and um, the client's vision of the space aligns and I was telling a lot of the visitors on the soft open, they would ask me how, how much of the space, how much of the project did you f see realized? And I said, I, I was comfortable in telling people about 96% of what we designed and, and did in the project or wanted to do in the project was, was realized. Excellent. Yeah. And, and when you see your project in time online, and I, I can't lie, but uh, I actually teared up because I've never thought I would actually see my first project. You know, I never thought I'd see this project, this small little 2400 square foot project, and you'd see the image of it online and, and you see these images come up and nobody knows me in this town. Now they do. Well, and that was a funny thing. My mom, she, I sent my mom the link to the uh, Time Online piece. And the first thing she said was, they don't mention your name. And I, oh. <laughs> I'm like, mom, I said, it's a 250 word piece that's basically from another website. <laughs> I said, they're not going to talk about me and I'm not asking to be talked about. And quite frankly, I don't have a website. So if they even mention my name, I said, you know, I'm not prepared to handle that kind of 
anyone, any, any even interest yet. So, but those aren't reasonable excuses for a mom. I know. <laughs> exactly. As far as a mom's concerned, why didn't they mention my child? Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that your client's parents and the clients, for those who don't know, are brother and sister, the fact that their parents came to you and said, thank you for taking such good care of our, of our kids that you, you can tell your mom that yeah. she'll be happy. Yeah. Now you can build well, a website in the name of your mom <laughs> <laughs> and to be a better versed in the world of the architecture media circus. Yeah. So you can be passed around from blog to blog and the name Ken Kunze will show up in lights. It looks awesome. It, it, the pictures I've seen, it looks amazing. I, I can't wait to get up there and see it for real. Yeah, the project looks really, really good. I mean, one of the best parts about it, too, is that no animals were harmed in the process of making it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> vegan made, vegan housed, vegan run. Design and build vegan. <laughs> All right. So should we move on to the news? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, following up with the kind of... Um, the much more in-depth episode we did last week with uh, Martha Thorne of the the executive director of the Pritzker Prize to talk about uh, this year's winner, which if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and, and listen. I think uh, it was a really great conversation we had with her. So I recommend you checking that out. Let's move on. The, uh, the, the first story that we're going to be talking about this week is a feature article written by Justine Testato here in our office titled To Each Their Own Home a peek into the homeless exhibition at USC. Justine penned this piece this week on the homeless photo exhibition at the University of Southern California. Sophia Borges and Susan Nwankpa of Colorblock took photos of homeless individuals living on Wilshire Boulevard and then framed them with line drawings of imagined spaces. Sophia Borges gave this statement to Justine. One of the goals was to try to change the context the homeless are in every day. They are always in search of shelter, and their entire lives are spent on the move. They're just looking for a moment of respite. They end up having these very informal and very exposed structures where they have to create a personal space that is, in a way, from their imagination, because they are always exposed. Donna, I noticed you made a comment on this story. Maybe uh, we can start with you. What do you think about this? First of all, I have to say all respect to Architect. The, the picture that is on the header on the Architect page of the article is not, in my opinion, the best example of the work that these women did. The drawings are beautiful and they are so compelling to me because they show just people who are not surrounded by shelter, but by sort of putting in this, this image of shelter around them and maybe an image of an activity that they're doing, they suddenly become not a homeless person stereotype, but an actual human who's just doing something. It's an incredibly beautiful show, and I would love to see it in person. One of the things I read today on Twitter, and I will see if I can find the reference for the show notes, was someone who said the, the issue of safety in public space isn't about having to look at a homeless person. The issue of safety in our society is about people in our society who do not have a place to go, who don't have shelter or don't have a home. And we've sort of pegged this idea that we want our, our public spaces to not have homeless people in them because that's scary. But in fact, the scary thing is that these are people who are trying to get by and trying to, you know, they, they're, they're not the danger. The danger is that we as a society can't figure this out. And um, these little images are absolutely beautiful and a, a really, really lovely conveyance of this notion of homeless people actually just being people, not some, you know, scary entity. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Ken, what did you get a look at those uh, all of the photographs? I did, and and um, they they are quite beautiful. And I, I was kind of thinking about the how they read like scrim. Um, they're kind of diaphanous, kind of very see through over um, a backdrop, which is seemingly not. 
you you can see homeless people and these people stand out in in us in our society and they're like donna was saying it's the it's the thing that we can't run from but then they're they're presented in a very interesting way. And the one thing I kind of wonder about these kinds of projects is, and I think they try to talk a little bit about that, is that this straddles a fine line of, of props for for our own kind of amusement in a way. I, I think, you know, what people need is our homes. And, and a lot of times the homeless people that are homeless don't want a place to live. And that's kind of our notion is that they're homeless and they're without home. But then if you many homeless that are out there would not want to be in what we would think of as a home because they choose to live off the grid because they have some mental disabilities or some cognitive dysfunction that even if you gave them a home wouldn't allow them to stay in the home. So while at this, at one point I, I think about this as a very, very lovely idea, I'm struck by the idea of saying this is a lovely idea and then we have this ridiculous situation and then are they props for just presenting a great, a very lovely idea. So kind of there's this internal kind of struggle there. Yeah, I think it's an interesting approach to not the issue of homelessness as a design problem of saying we need to now design or architect a certain new form of homeless architecture, but rather trying to show the actions of homeless people in what has become their de facto like home as the same actions that someone might be doing in their personal home and kind of bridge the gap to the humanity that way. And I do know that um, I'm a friend of Sophia's and um, I was happy to know that she was doing this because I know it's a very personal project for her. She herself has a formerly had a brother who was homeless for up until the end of his life. And she's lived in Los Angeles for a while and, and teaches at USC and so does have kind of a firsthand glance at the homeless situation here, which is just completely bonkers and completely out of control. There have been many accounts recently of LA trying to deal with it on a policy level and fund more money into dealing with it, but it just hasn't really been able to catch the momentum that it needs. So I think that anything like this that can kind of be brought up and bring into the question of not so much look at how much of a problem this is, but say, look how much of look look at how much these people are still people. And so maybe we need to continue doing this work just by that ends alone and not as seeing it simply as a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, when I first saw this feature, I first thought it was maybe a little insensitive because, as Ken mentioned, they did kind of portray the homeless people to appear like props in an exhibition of art. I also, one of my first impressions was, you know, most people are homeless due to mental illness, and a lot of that is schizophrenia. And when I first saw these images, I was thinking, like, they're in this alternative reality <laughs> that maybe they do, you know, exist in this alternative reality. It's, it's kind of like a projection upon their, um, the reality that they've maybe, you know, that they're falsely living in. But, you know, all that said, I think the issue of homelessness is a very sensitive issue. And the more that we are exposed and talk about it, the more aware everybody is. The images themselves, I, I think, are, are quite beautiful. And I, I do, I, I do really appreciate them from both the artistic and the, and that kind of uh, humanitarian perspective. Yeah, I can see the criticism of, of using them as props in a, a art exhibit is definitely a question to ask. Absolutely. But they remind me, perhaps because they look so simply drawn, they remind me of my very first drawing class in architecture school where we learned how to draw in perspective. And you start with the human figure. You start by drawing the human body on the page. And then you build the perspective around that. So my attitude is always you start with the human and you build architecture around the human. And I, I think in the, these drawings to me convey that notion of, of the very basic aspect of what we do as architects. So uh, they're, they're very lovely and very 
craftsmanly made, whether you agree with their uh, their politic or not, frankly. So Yeah. So if you're in LA, I believe that exhibition is on through the 22nd. So not so much longer, but definitely go check it out if you're near the USC campus in LA. The next topic we're going to talk about today in the news could not be farther from the issue of homelessness. It has to do with a piece that the New York Times has, uh, ran recently that was part of a series that produced a bunch of pieces in 2015 and, and earlier about basically shadow companies buying incredibly high value real estate in New York City without anyone knowing who's actually buying it and being suspicious of those people buying it simply to launder money or for other shade and shady purposes. So we had a post this, in the last week with the most recent feature from this series about the Department of Treasury now enforcing someone to state their name in these companies that are buying these uh, incredibly high-valued properties. I believe if, if it's any property over $3 million in New York City and also in other um, areas, the, Department of Tre the Treasury Department is also looking into properties in um, Miami area. If it's over a million dollars in Miami, then they're going to look into the company buying these things if it's not named and they're forcing the person, someone to identify in association with the purchase. So if you make an all-cash purchase of incredibly high-value real estate in Miami or New York, you're basically going to be tracked, which of course is a very controversial idea. But also before this was already incredibly controversial because it was kind of implicitly or just kind of under the rug known that a lot of shady buyers were purchasing incredibly valuable real estate for the sole purpose and then not inhabiting them, but perhaps in the New York Times piece references keeping shady goods in one of them or never living in them or simply like laundering money through that investment. So it's a really fascinating piece and definitely something that builds upon a lot of wacky <laughs> real estate acrobatics happening in places like New York. So could this be called homefulness? <laughs> this is this is home surfightness. This is this is like this is beyond. I mean, I didn't I just there's a few pieces back from the from the previous um, parts of the series that the New York Times ran where they mention a property purchased for over thirty million dollars in New York City for an apartment. And I just I mean, <laughs> I just like that sheer number. I'm sure it's an amazing place. Thirty million dollars is not that unusual these days. And in I'm New sure York. it isn't. And that's and it's you know so I think the that particular property was purchased by a um, Malaysian prime minister. I want to say, but it just it was a fascinating piece, and so I really encourage people to check it out. Don and Ken, do you have any other prevailing ideas from this piece? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I, I thought one of the interesting thoughts she's I found quite funny, actually, from Arconnect on the comments was, I'm against, this is from Carrera, I'm against crooks, but equally against new methods to catch them. Turning in your neighbor for using cash is a little Stasi to me. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know which neighbor he's, he's talk, that, or that person is talking about. It seems as if like the fact that these people are not present and therefore cannot be referred to having neighbors, so to speak, to be in relationship to them is part of the issue. I mean, you have to, re I think you either have to report or when you deposit $10,000 or more than $10,000 in the bank, you have to report that, I think, to, to someone. And so for you to purchase this kind of property using cash, it's uh, beyond absurd. I mean, money laundering and everything aside, because I just can't get my head around the notion of having $30 million in cash. And I know they don't have it in suitcases, like it's wired. <laughs> I just can't get my head around that. The thing that bothers me, one of the things that bothers me the most about this is one of the commenters, David, who I always think of in my mind as David, because he spells his name with two Vs. That is so funny. I was thinking the exact same that? thing. No, David. Yeah. I, for some reason, the two Vs makes me think David. Yeah. All right. Makes so let's David. just refer to him that way. So commentator David, who always posts great stuff, posted a link to a longer New York Times episode or uh, series on this 
And with a little infographic showing these buildings that are partially lit up, depending on how many people who own a unit there actually live in the city. And to me, the neighborliness is what it all comes down to, that if you want to have a community of people living together, they all have to live there, you know, to to be a part of the community. And anyone who's ever spent time, I'm thinking about places like I now have property in Traverse City, Michigan. When my husband was growing up in Traverse City, Michigan, you know, Traverse City is a place that, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day, it is jam packed with people. And the rest of the year, it's a quarter of the population and it's, you know, significantly smaller and less going on. That is changing these days. But anyone who's ever spent time in like a vacation community or a beachfront community or anything, you know that those places just become weird when the mass of people are not there that the place is built up for. So I see New York becoming this place that's just very dark all the time because everyone's in Russia or Malaysia or whatever. And then there's just a few people from, you know, Jersey going to Times Square. Sorry, Ken. Jersey. You blame it on Jersey. No, I'm not blaming it on Jersey. I want those Jersey people there. It's the Russians and the, yeah, that, that's confusing. Yeah, I completely agree, Donna. I mean, I think that this is the biggest problem that New York has been experiencing since like, I don't know, the 70s, maybe or 80s when it, when this started. I mean, it, the city is becoming like like a business that you can buy stock in and people need to live in a city for a city to be a city. And I mean, when when so much of this city is being owned by vacant homeowners, it's, you know, it has a serious effect on how that city functions. So I'm, I'm all for this, you know, cracking down on this practice. Hopefully, you know, these people will find other ways to hide their money I mean, from, a, from an urban perspective. Uh, I'm less disturbed by them, you know, laundering their money than I am by them ruining the city of New York. Yeah, launder your money through park development or something. Exactly. Nail salons. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the yeah. other big New York Car times. washes. <laughs> you know. well, Delia, what do you think? I definitely, in reading the comments on this piece, I'm, I'm also like similar of a split mind and how I'm, Assured by the fact that it it seems shady and annoying and implicitly like problematic for companies like this to be able to without identifying themselves and put and offer up these potential uh, places for laundering by not being upfront with who they are that's implicitly problematic. Whether I think that it should allow for the automatic identifying and tracking, which is the words the New York Times used of these people through those purchases, that's a whole other issue entirely that I don't really feel super prepared to talk about. But in general, yeah, it's just like what kind of city can operate on these kinds of investments and and what will happen should this kind of trend become, well, it's already common, but should this trend just continue through the next 50 years or so? It just, it paints a very bleak future image of the city. I, picking up on what you just said, Amelia, about it's a little scary to think of tracking people so much. And there are definitely legitimate uses of this kind of real estate transaction. I have, well, I mean, legitimate. I have a good friend who's a very well-known author and had to buy a house, not in their name because they uh, kept having fans show up at the front door of their old house. Hmm. So, you know, there are certainly times when you want to not know what you, you would want people to not know where you live. But the scale of this in New York is just it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I don't think they're making it. It's not as if like it's an outing of who individually, but simply in the company, because a lot of these purchases are shady because they're purchased by under the name of LLC companies that are not needing the signature of the actual person who's involved in it. So instead, they'll have the so-called nominees be the signees on on the contract for these LLCs to purchase the property. So it's just some lawyer's name comes up or whatever other person who's helping running the company. So yeah, if, if it's like an author and also I'm I I don't know what author your friend is, but I'm doubting they're still the kind of author that can afford a $3 million and upward of property in New York City. So there is a certain built-in limit there. Does it also 
burden infrastructure and resources when you have to redirect because you have a, an area code that is built up with these high dollar and then you have to then redirect resources to an area that doesn't get served because it, it paints a picture that's not really, it's not a real honest reflection of what's going on there because these are essentially ghost towers. It's a kind of uh, another kind of form of uh, squatting, if you want, in, in these luxury townhomes so that then the burden is then placed on the people who actually do live there and whose taxes would be affected by this kind of redirection. I mean, it seems like another way of, you know, do these people have a vote? I mean, can they, you know, do they have a say in the, in the city if they're foreign? Well, I think this that issue is, is perhaps better brought into focus by thinking about the instances that aren't in New York, because this is not a problem unique to New York City. I mean, it's happening in other places throughout the, the United States. This, um, in particular, there's a good graphic that the New York Times has showing different instances across the U.S. But of course, there are issues also in Miami, as the piece references, and also in on the West Coast, of course. So it's like, if you look at it in terms of overall city development, I think that maybe focusing on, on New York is already too much of a crazy outlier, but that there's, in fact, higher potentials of crappiness happening in other cities that don't already have such an entrenched, yeah, you say like, how can we make up a term for super rich squatters and the squatting is done by investment dollars rather than physical occupancy? If these people just want to invest in in real estate in the city, why don't they just buy some land and, and pay a company to build housing that basically breaks even, which is basically the, you know, affordable housing that, I mean, they would be making the same amount of money as they would be with the vacant lot and they would still be, you know, having a big chunk of real estate. But then they um, can't throw crazy, like, Patrick's St. Patrick's Day raves in their New York Times loft. But I don't think these people are, <laughs> I, I was recently talking with a, with a real estate manager here in Los Angeles who just manages a lot of real estate for wealthy people that that a lot of them live in Asia. And he said that he hasn't had to deal with a lot of his clients for years because they've just left these, you know, mega mansions here in LA vacant for years. They don't even come. I mean, I think it's just a way to plop down your money. I mean, it's it's a lot better. It's a much better investment than putting in the bank. It's better than putting in stocks. I mean, it's it's going to go up a lot in value. And, you know, by just letting it sit there, it doesn't do anything for the city. It doesn't do anything for the community. Anyways, we, we got to move on because we got a few other stories. Staying on the topic of New York, there is a couple big stories, emphasize the word big in New York. <laughs> First of all, there was the, uh, the kind of surprising, maybe not so surprising news that Rupert Murdoch has pulled out of the, of two World Trade Center, the project that got a lot of press a few months ago that was unveiled by big uh, Bjarke Ingels group. He was the key tenant in this project. So we have since heard that the project as a result is, is on hold. So maybe it's not even going to get built. We'll see. I, I think it's, I don't know, it's too, too early to speculate right now. Uh, Larry Silverstein sounded pretty optimistic when he made a comment today that that they will surely find another tenant soon but whether or not that tenant's going to be you know want to go with along with the same design who knows i doubt larry silverstein is anything but optimistic at any time to the in press his life. <laughs> to the press exactly yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah it's huge this is huge news this is very um this could be a deal breaker obviously the building at some point is still no one's questioning whether or not the building will be rebuilt but under which design and certainly with the the anchor tenant is going to be really integral to how this rebuild gets integrated back into new york society and new york culture one of my favorite comments in this article was by Midlander. He posted a longer comment, but a part of it, he said, as a prominent New York office developer told us, I measure offices as butts in seats. I sell it as the vision for the future of work. I thought that was kind of uh, appropriate. Donna, what do you make of this news? 
There's a little uh, thing going on in my neighborhood right now where some architects did a design for a apartment building and the neighbors said, oh, it's too tall. It's we don't like it. It's ugly. And so they redesigned it. And now the redesign is not as good. And I feel like I've seen this happen over and over and over again. And one of the comments on this article, not on Arconnect, but on like the New York Post article or something about it was that people said, oh, now maybe we'll get rid of Big's boxy tower and we'll go back to the old foster design. And like, that's never going to happen. What I'm thinking is architecture never goes backwards, right? We always talk about things in an exciting and optimistic way. And we never go back again to something that doesn't happen. But I think in this case, everyone was so excited. I was so excited about this changing of the guard that that Big was doing this project. And I just think, even though it hasn't been confirmed yet, I don't think it's going to happen now at all. I think it's going to end up being something else. What if they go full circle and go with uh, Daniel Liebskin's one World Trade Center? They got <laughs> trashed. I mean, it, it sounds like a kind of a familiar um, situation that we're seeing right now, looking back at that project. Yeah. I mean, but the, one World Trade is already built, right? This is two World Trade. So I just give it a different name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shrink it down 1. a little bit. 1.1. You know, what I think about is, well, <laughs> speaking of laundering money, you know, how much did they pay? Is it Squid Opera who did that awesome video for this when it was? Oh, yeah, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Squint Opera, I believe. Squint Opera. Squid Opera is a great name as well. I don't Squid know if anyone opera. knows that. <laughs> All those tentacles. I would love to see a Squid Opera. You know, at least they got paid for their work, right? They did a great video and they got paid. And uh, one would assume that Bjorki Ingels got paid for their work. And um, I'm, I'm just at this point assuming that the project itself is not going to happen at all. Ken, what do you think? Well, I, I first wanted to make a just a small correction of what Paul said about Rupert Murdoch pulling out. I don't think Rupert Murdoch knows the meaning of pull out. <laughs> he does slither out of a lot of things. He has a lot of kids. Oh, nice. Well, he does have a lot of kids, but he also is 90 years old or something in that area. Despite getting hooked up with uh, Jerry Hall. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't think she'll be um, on the good side of that relationship. <laughs> He's a spring chicken for an architect, though. So media moguls and architects can, can be 90 and still very capable of of pulling out Absolutely. or staying in. Maybe, <laughs> maybe she's the one that made him pull out of this project. <laughs> oh. She's Yoko Onoing the, uh, the big project. <laughs> oh, this seems like a good blind item. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the World Trade Center 1 was to the height of Leapskin's tower. So what I was thinking was what I always thought New York needed was a second Statue of Liberty. So I'm all for <laughs> Danny building his ode to Statue of Liberty on uh, number two of this one. So <laughs> have at it, kid. <laughs> all right. We've got some great ideas for proposals. So, Bjarka, we're willing to work with you. But if, you know, if, the, if it's fair game here, we've got some ideas. Sounds like a competition. <laughs> So moving out of New York City for now, the next news item we wanted to bring to the table today is about this particular 1960s brutalist office building, the Fogarty Building in downtown Providence, which is slated to be demolished. This is a building that has been abandoned for the better part of the 21st century. I believe it was abandoned in 2003, and it is finally set to be demolished, much to the chagrin of many of our commentators, for the loss and the death of another brutalist structure. And it in the comments to this piece, it's really fascinating because there does seem to be some kind of knee-jerk defense of brutalism as like, oh, of course, another brutalist martyr on the chopping block of like unappreciative peon citizens. And what I was really glad to see in later comments um, from, in fact, Thayer D brings up the fact or just says out the gate, 
the Brutalist building is a hundred times shittier than the Marriott building, which is shitty. <laughs> and the Marriott is, of course, the um, he's referring to, or he or she is referring to the hotel that is slated to be rebuilt on the same property, which a rendering of, which, of that hotel is posted into the comments of that piece. And what is always interesting, whenever we report on brutalism, there's always this like kind of feeling of um, defending the automatic underdog and the architect feeling like they are very deserved and virtuous by defending the, the mere idea of brutalism, presuming that everyone else will hate it. When in fact, Thayer goes on to say that the new building will make for a more pleasant experience for the average citizen, which is a criteria that most architects simply can't accept. Maybe that's why Stephen Hole was denied his Pritzker. It's all shitty and fake, at least give something back to society. And so I think that neatly encapsulates a lot of the argumentation that happens around brutalist structures is that it's easy to defend as from an architectural history point of view and, and maybe as identifying yourself as some type of defendant of this often maligned form of architecture. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, that, I think that brings up an important point to the average citizen walking around that place that it was an abandoned concrete shell for the better part of the last 15 years. And they will be glad to see it go in favor of something that might bring more activity to that place, and no matter how boring the building might actually be. And I just want to end this kind of recap of the news post by mentioning how the article we posted to ends their piece with an interview with Jana or Jana Blanca, who is the daughter of the original architect of the Fogarty building, H. Michael Blanca from the firm Castellucci, Gali, and Planca Associates. And she basically is, she's sad that the building's going to be demolished because her father was involved in designing it. And she has many fond childhood memories of the building being designed. However, she's like, well, she, she ends, or the piece ends with her mentioning that she understands that her father had to have buildings demolished in order for his buildings to be built. So she understands that it's okay for, she's ultimately okay with the news that his building must be demolished, that another building may be built. She says, it's a shame to see it go, but I think he would understand that. And I thought that was like such a strange resolution for the, for the writer of this article to say, well, you know, so it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically not trying to, not making any comment about like specifically how, as has been brought up many times in the comments, how this could have been a renovation project how the idea or this expectation, the status quo expectation that demolition is the only way to go when it comes time to reevaluate an old building. It was interesting to kind of see that public opinion kind of depicted so starkly as the automatic choice. Okay. So I follow a Twitter account called Brutal House or this Brutal House. And so I'm frequently seeing lovely, in my mind, brutalist buildings pop up on my Twitter feed. And I very recently one called Keybridge House is going to be torn down. And the art critic Charles Darwent tweeted this, kiss Keybridge House goodbye for it will soon be gone, replaced by more stick-a-brick pap. So I've been saying stick a brick pat over and over and over to myself lately. And I have to point out that Fayer D on the comments, who I respect the heck out of a whole lot of his comments, he's wrong on this one. This Brutalist building is not a hundred times shittier than the Marriott building that's replacing it. I would walk into that Brutalist building and press my cheek lovingly against the exposed concrete. And I will not do that against the drywall and stick a brick <laughs> pat of the Marriott building. Yeah, he's just wrong on that. He, he is you know, and I also think the Brutalist building could have easily been remade into a really super cool boutique motel that could have charged a lot more than, you know, crappy stick-a-brick pep Marriott. Like a Brutalist Ace. Is that what you're thinking? Yes, absolutely. Or a, a loft or whatever, the 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 W's, all the all the cool boutique hotels. Yeah. It's sad. I think it's sad. Ken, what do you think? Isn't this where Docomomo comes in? Isn't is this that is that the Docomo? Yeah, Docomomo. Yeah, I mean yep. Look, I'm ne I was not a fan of brutalism for the longest time. 
And it wasn't until I think I started looking at the Smithson's work. I think it was brought up by Denise Scott Brown. I didn't really have a full understanding of their work. And it's just, it was so beautiful. And again, you know, I think when I think about this kind of project and I think about the, the possibilities therein for a, uh, a potential redesign, you know, it, it just seems it's not the lack of creativity on the architect side, it's the lack of creativity inside of the political side. It's the lack of vision, the lack of will, and a complete capitulation to the basis part of our nature, which is to look for potential revenue from these large corporations who can build this, this shit that they're going to build on this site after they tear this down. That building that they're going to put there is, I just saw that. I, I drove downtown in Minneapolis and saw that same exact building. I think they lifted it out and just dropped it in the city. It's just, there's nothing remotely interesting. There's nothing remotely thoughtful. There's nothing remotely, even, I think if you look at the adjacent buildings, this doesn't fit into any context. Despite you know, this building may not have, may have outlived its usefulness. It certainly isn't a government building anymore, but it certainly could be turned into something that uh, the public could enjoy. And they should have a right to, to see this building outlive the people who are actually destroying it right now. So it seems pretty sad to me. I'll be a contrarian. I generally don't appreciate what the Thayer D writes a lot about our modern <laughs> architecture because I think I think this particular individual never sides with anything having remotely interesting modern appeal. He's always kind of this kind of um, ridiculous point of view. So I, I totally disagree with him. It. <laughs> yeah, we need a style guide for how to refer to the indeterminate gender of our various commentators. Well. All I have to say about this news, which is just a general comment in brutalism is, I mean, I personally love brutalism and brutalist buildings, but uh, I totally understand that a majority of the population does not feel the same way. So inevitably, I think uh, that's, that's where we are with a lot of these projects, unfortunately. Moving on, there's some news recently about the government supporting uh, autonomous cars. Uh, the, uh, the headline recently, uh, the U.S. just got $4 billion to spend on self-driving cars. Amelia actually um, added to this news piece, um, and I quote, this is the first time the federal government has actively engaged in the regulation and implementation of driverless vehicles. State governments had previously been putting forth their own standards. So we've discussed autonomous vehicles quite a bit on this podcast. So what is everyone's opinion on this federal push to move the, the technology forward? I uh, am super excited by this. I doubt $4 billion will really be a tip in the or a, a drop in the hat, um, whatever the phrase is, in terms of in overall infrastructure spending in the U.S., just by how crappy the current infrastructure status already is, that to say $4 billion on self-driving cars is a little bit of like, you know, the flashy way to advertise it. Because if you're going to support self-driving cars, you need static roads. <laughs> they don't need to be self-driving roads. They just need to be good roads. And we have a really terrible record with that. I was going to say a really terrible track record, but that seemed too bad of a pun. <laughs> also, I would like to say that, that the piece, the little add-on that I had in the article is, is a, a paraphrasing of what the New York Times points out because specifically this article and this announcement from Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox happened, I believe, shortly after Obama's last State of the Union address. And it was kind of expected that in that address he would say something about transportation infrastructure and particularly the investment in something like driverless car technology from a federal level and that that didn't happen people were kind of like oh, okay i guess guess that's gonna happen and then 
this announcement came and everyone was like, yes, very excited. So it is it is interesting. It is, of course, also I can see the idea of the U.S. government partnering with, say, a company like Google to research and implement driverless car technologies on the ground can probably have a, a lot of people a little bit nervous. But overall, of course, it's something that is pretty exciting to see the U.S. government invest in. And um, the $4 billion is slated um, in the 2016 budget to be implemented over the next 10 years. So it's not like they're just like, here, Google, take $4 billion and build us a fleet of driverless cars. But instead, overall, the research should be going into making it a reality, which is pretty exciting. I'm really excited about this news because I think that autonomous vehicles are totally inevitable and they will be life-changing in a good way for the world. One thing, though, that I think uh, at the recent CES show in Las Vegas, they introduced this Ehong human manned drone, which is basically kind of leapfrogging autonomous vehicles. And I think that this device has a lot of potential for the future. Basically, it's a drone where that uh, allows users to go inside. I think only one person in this model. And there's no driving. It's completely autonomous. The product that they're pitching includes a software package that basically networks all of these devices so that they can kind of fly together and not crash into each other. But, you know, if you can have an autonomous vehicle take you across the city, why do you have to take the streets? You know, just uh, plug it in on, in your GPS and and uh, go there directly in the air. You know, that that's going to be further down the road. But I, I really believe that, I mean, already a lot of cars have autonomous features that are getting built in that statistically most people do not know how to use them. I've actually told quite a few people that I've driven with in their car and that they have some of these features in their cars. Most people have had no idea. You know, there's adaptive cruise control, lane assist, parking assist. But these are all these are all little features that are creeping into cars. And I feel pretty confident that within a couple of years, you know, Tesla and I know that there's a lot of a lot of companies, BMW are really pushing for autonomous driving and I see it happening. So this is coming at a good time and I'm sure that the money will get spent well, well at least I hope it will. It probably won't. Donna, what do you make of this news? I agree with Paul that it's it's coming. Absolutely. And I do have a friend here in town, an architect who has a Tesla. And when he drives to a uh, job site that's an hour away, he gets onto the freeway and basically stops driving at that point. He can put his Tesla into auto mode and he barely has to look up so he can be prepping for his presentation in the car on the way to the uh, to the event. And then he just has to drive the last five minutes, you know, went to getting off the freeway and to the job site. And I think this is great. I'm actually excited about autonomous cars also and I'm uh, how they might change the built world. I'm really eager to see how that's going to happen. One thing I realized recently, though, is everyone's saying, oh, we won't need as much space for parking. And when I look at a downtown street and I see that there's parallel parking along both sides, I feel like we're suddenly going to have to have a lot more space for pickup and drop off, right? We're going to have cars delivering people. So all of those curb lanes are suddenly going to become uh, pickup drop off locations in my mind, which may or may not be good. I mean, right now, a parked car provides a certain amount of protection on the sidewalk. So it's nice to have that parallel or parking along the the curb to give you that protection. So I think there's going to be a whole reworking of our road infrastructure to make these complete streets that can take on and, and allow for all kinds of vehicles. And I think that's a good thing. So I'm actually excited about it as well. But 
I will never, ever give up driving a Miata stick shift. So, you know, great. I, I'm not their market. <laughs> well, theoretically, Donna, you could have your cake and eat it too by going out into the Indianapolis wilderness or so and, and riding your stick shift just as much as you like and getting into the crazy donuts that you inevitably do. And then when you're going into downtown and you're or you're picking up your son or whatever, you can put it in driverless mode and just kick back and have a bourbon. When I need to text, I can go into, yeah, exactly. into driverless mode. Ken, what about you? Wow, many things. The interesting thing, I, when I think about this technology, I think about could the internet exist today in this current in political environment? And I think about what he's trying to do with this investment in this technology. And I'm a little more pessimistic than you guys are, if only because government was really instrumental in creating um, the things that we're using right now to communicate with. And, you know, that could, that kind of investment by the government almost certainly could. I mean, the kind of things we're doing now couldn't couldn't happen without that kind of investment by our government. Um, so th th to think about this in that way, it, it seems I'm a little more pessimistic about it. A couple more things that this seems to be the last area of our lives where there's not a lot of open source around the technology. And I know that the car companies are really clamping down on the proprietary nature of their of their computers where that it that you can't even tinker with your car anymore that if you do you're violating some particular copyright or, or um, potentially could uh, face a, a lawsuit so I wonder you know I as the car companies seem to be a little bit more nimble than they were maybe 10 years ago and I think that was probably a product of uh, the, the the economic collapse but I wonder if in that this money doesn't solidify their ability to control a large part of our lives where, you know, I would love to see a car company have open source technology that allows IT professionals to kind of modify or adjust or swap out and um, be able to do some interesting things with that. And then the, the, the last thing I heard, uh, which is kind of interesting, that the nature of how we look at car ownership is changing. Uh, I just heard this piece, on, I think it was on NPR last week, where they talk about how more car companies are starting to look at the idea of multiple person lease vehicles. Hmm. So I think the idea of actually, it seems like the idea of actually owning a car anymore because we spend so little time in our vehicle and they spend more time sitting in front of our houses or in our garages. Um, the idea of actually the kind of old notion of owning a car is actually changing. So this technology and the nature of how we own vehicles, all of that coming together and, you know, the technology, it's very interesting time for cars. And you think about gas prices coming down, does that affect how much money is invested in this arena? So there's a lot of, um, this is a very interesting time for this particular industry. And I'm kind of not as, I'm, I'm pessimistic because my politics is a little pessimistic at the moment. <laughs> no, but there's, Ken, you're right, this brings, this particular news piece brings up a lot of different um, issues regarding the driverless cars and autonomous vehicles in general, because I think, first of all, there aren't, as you say, like, uh, I think so-called, like, explicitly called open source technology for these things isn't something that, as far as I know, has really come to the fore. However, it's extremely easy to so-called jailbreak these cars. So people are doing it. And there is even, I forget, I'm not sure, I'll find it for the show notes, but there was um, an amazing piece recently about um, this one kid who, and I say kid because I think he's younger than I am, but someone who in San Francisco had managed to basically create his own autonomous car. 
and did this simply by getting like the dealer manual for the Acura or something that he bought and managed to hack the car's computer system to create a autonomous system for it. And so in that regard, he's of course not doing it to then sell it to someone. He's doing it to, a, to probably prove that he can and also to test the technology himself before it becomes widely accessible to everyone else and only available through the Teslas or the BMWs of the world. However, What's interesting, too, is as the government is earmarking this cash specifically for autonomous vehicles, to me, that presumes that at least there's some possibility of having that autonomous vehicle and infrastructure investment go eventually towards public transportation. So that instead of saying, oh, these car companies are experimenting with multiple lease agreements instead, or multiple person lease agreements, instead, it's like the company produces it to lease to the government, and then the government unleashes a fleet of these vehicles through different cities, much like a city bike program, and then you just use them as you wish. And so that that could then become, dissolve the idea of single person uh, car ownership, but still be able to call up a car at the same ease that we currently have with something like Uber. So the final note that I just want to add before we move on so that we can keep get, uh, get through the rest of the show has to do with, yeah, again, the who's producing these cars. Because as as we spoke of earlier, like you can, of course, jailbreak these things, but certain autonomous technologies are only available in certain countries. It can be something like really small and technical, such as like how much gas you are allowed to put in a car before it goes from an all electric classification to a hybrid classification in the U.S. That number differs depending on which country the car is purchased in, regardless of which country the car is produced in. So it's really it's going to be really fascinating to see how not only are the cars are regulated, presuming they are cars, and also who's producing them, whether that's the U.S. or however. So maybe we'll get just like every Apple product, you know, designed in California, built in China. <laughs> we'll have to see. So the last news post we're going to discuss today um, is actually not a single news post, but rather a sequence of posts specifically having to do with the debacle that is the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Stadium that Zaha Hadid Architects had or- originally won the competition to design, and then that design was controversially scrapped last summer for supposedly being far too expensive and overgoing a bunch of construction estimates. And in replace of that uh, design, the Japanese government hosted another competition that Kengo Kuma Associates won, and their designs for the so the new stadium are now under fire for uh, supposedly looking too much like Zaha Hadid's old design. So there are a few things at play here. There's both the fact that the Tokyo Olympic Committee is refusing to pay Zaha Hadid Architects for the work that she has done on the National Stadium unless she pans over the design copyright for the, for her work, which is kind of a shit show all by itself. <laughs> and then on top of that, she has been, or not she in particular, but her firm has accused Kengo Kuma Associates' design of having certain similarities that are far too close to her original design. And this has, of course, sparked a lot of <laughs> divisiveness on our connect just simply about the politics and the ethics of engaging in design competitions, first and foremost, and also in what kind of allowance and authorship you still hold over designs that don't get built. So Donna, what did you think of this news? This is a really complex issue. The only thing I can really say is we will never know for sure why the Zaha Hadid project was canceled. Um, we'll never know why Kango Kumas was picked or why they now are purportedly saying that they're not going to pay Zaha or, you know, it's so much of this, these large public projects happen behind closed doors and with secret dealings that we just don't know anything about. I would be surprised if it's true that the Olympics Committee is refusing to pay Zaha at all for any work that's done to date. You know, she deserves to be paid for the work done to date. That's just how these kinds of contracts work. And I should say, I only really know American contract law, not 
Japanese or London or international contract laws, but she deserves to be paid for her work, obviously. If there's an issue over copyright, it's mind boggling to me that anyone would say that you could sort of own the copyright to a stadium design anyway, because stadiums all pretty much look the same. I mean, a lot of the commentary on Arconnect has been, oh, look, it has seats and no columns in front of them. (laughs) And it's on the same site. Yeah, it's on the same site. Exactly. Um, You know, there's there is very little similarity as far as I can see between the two, except that they're both stadiums. Now, if the Olympics Committee truly is telling Zaha that she has to give up any kind of right to use that design or anything similar in the future, that's a problem because as architects, what we sell is our ideas and we do need to maintain ownership over them within contract limits. And contract law is hugely confusing anyway. And uh, international contract law, I can only imagine is even worse. So, you know, I think I think uh, Zaha deserves to get paid for what she's done. That doesn't matter whether you the design gets built or not. If you design something, you deserve to get paid for it, period. So that's kind of where my strongest uh, loyalty towards this this controversy is lying. And I'll just also say, I think the new design is very lovely. I think it's very pretty. It's very simple. It's, you know, I don't have a problem with it at all. So I, I hope that Japan will be happy with it. Ken, what do you think? You know, I think uh, when I saw the these two news items come up, I thought, you know, on the one hand, I was really sympathetic to Zaha's office in that they should get paid for the work that they've done. And when they contested the design by Kengo Kuma saying somehow it bore striking similarities to their design, you kind of go, what, what, what crack are you smoking over there in, in London? But then I think there is some merit to seeing their point of view if, the government wants their design, and if there somehow can be proven that the footprint is the same, if there's some structural similarities, if there's some work that has been done on behalf of Zaha's team, not just the architecture firm, but the the design team, because I think what they are doing in asking to get paid for the work is that they're protecting the entire team. They are trying to recoup the costs, not just for their firm, I would imagine, but they have to pay, you know, a multitude of other design professionals involved with this project. So at first blush, I thought the two weren't connected. But, you know, when when we were talking about this earlier with Paul, there could be some other connections here that we're not we're not seeing that have a deeper, you know, either programmatic relationship that they're concerned about, that they're trying to protect. And by calling this design out, maybe they're it's just a, a shot across the bow that it, you are screwing with. If your intent is to take our design, we're going to attack you this way. If we want to get paid and you want the design, then we're going to shoot a, a, a cannonball across your bow this way to make sure that you're not uh, appropriating any of the des- either design elements, programmatic elements, footprint, that we're going to make sure that we stick you with a fee that's going to be in excess of what you normally would have paid us because you put us in this untenable position. You know, this is a very interesting case when they're seen side by side and you start to really kind of dig into the thinking around how could one impact the other. So all of that also relates to the fact that even earlier, before any of this was an issue, in September, the Tokyo Olympic Games decided to scrap their logo that they were using because it was accused of plagiarizing a previous design. So fascinating issues happening around intellectual property and copyright with architecture and design, specifically in these Olympic Games. So we'll look forward to seeing how that's eventually, hopefully, resolved. 
But that's it for today's episode. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you like, please consider rating us on iTunes and visiting our site and seeing what other people are saying about the podcast. You can reach out to us either through arcconnect.com or through Twitter. We are at Arc Sessions. That's A-R-C-H Sessions. And um, please don't hesitate to send us any constructive feedback about the show. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.